Okay, Allison, so tell me uh, about your earliest childhood memories of your relationship with flowers. Hmm. My earliest childhood memory would be when we lived in Lyme and my mother would grow flowers in the garden and she would take me to the garden club with her and they made a Lyme's Junior Best and Blooming, or I forget what it's called, but it was the Lyme Junior Garden Club. And um, so because she was in the garden club, I got to join that and I, over at the store, I have a picture of me winning something in the newspaper, eight years old. Wow, um, eight. And, and it's not so much a passion for flowers, it's more of everything, everything that grows outside, the textures, I mean, Colors. Mother Nature is amazing. And Isn't she? What we get every every single different season I, is just amazing. And we're able to, I go out and forage and bring some of that into our, to what we make. It makes, makes it kind of Ashley's Garden. And then when did you begin Ashley's Garden? I mean, what was the well, um, motivating factor? The motivating factor was... I had owned a flower shop with my mother down in um, Essex when I was 21 and 21 yeah right out of college and um, it was wonderful I, I uh, worked an apprentice under a woman who was European design trained and I learned a great deal from her um, and unfortunately we had to sell it because my Lyme disease was getting to be way too much and I couldn't work at the same time and then I was finally taken into a uh, research at Yale for it. And that was one of the longest uh, reported cases of Lyme disease in Connecticut. You have um, Lyme disease? Oh yeah, longest reported case. Yeah, very bad. Um, so then uh, my uh, then fiance and I moved down to North Carolina. Uh, his parents were from there and I worked at the largest florist in um, North Carolina in Raleigh. And that was very eye-opening to have a corporate floral experience um, and being have to be made to do traditional centerpieces and not not my European design which is very natural we don't use the wires and dyes and things and we just work with mother nature um, so I was down there for a couple of years and then came back here and got a corporate job for American greetings and did that for a while, started opening new stores for them, going from our house at that point in Waterford to uh, Meriden to open store and Manchester every day commuting. And at that point, um, David and I uh, got pregnant and with Ashley. And after driving an hour and a half each way in the sleet and you know, when you really think you're gonna die because you're in this kind of weather, I thought this just is not worth it. This is not how I'm gonna raise my child. I want to be able to spend time with her and be there and be that mom. And uh, my family is a family of entrepreneurs. Uh, my mom used to own the cheese shop downtown. I used to manage that for her, downtown Essex. Yeah. Um, before it was olive oils. Um, my sister had Seaflower Foods and that I put myself through college catering there 35 years. Wow. So uh, quite a, you know, a big family 
uh, relationship there as far as that's concerned. So actually starting a new business was like, well, well, okay, we're going to do this. And we knew that something different, you know, when we opened it, we had, uh, we were at Spencer's Corners and we had mulch on the floor and we had a couple of bunnies running around and our dogs and it was just a really feel good place. So right away you had animals in there always. as soon as you animals, opened? Always. I've always rescued animals. Always. Always been there with me. When was your first rescue? Um, when I was a child. What did you rescue? Um, I couldn't even tell you. It was probably a bird or a turtle or, you know, something. I, When we lived in Lyme, I would always ride my pony and um, come across things. I'd be gone all day over to Uncas and... And uh, it just, it was, it was good. But, um, you know, that's when I would find things and bring them home and my mother would freak out and I would learn, I learned how to take care of them. And then Release eventually them. as we went, when we were in our other store and we opened Ashley's Rainforest um, and we were doing rescue of uh, reptiles, we had 132 reptiles at one point. We would do outreach programs and, um, do the you remember roses the first and the reptiles reptile? did not necessarily come <laughs> <well> together. <laughs> that was not the best planned out. Do you remember the first uh, reptile that you rescued? Um, I think my first rescue, uh, you know, I purchased them when I was younger. Right. My first real rescue of a reptile, um, God, it's got to be way before this, but the one that stands out the most is is Mo. My, um, she's a ball python. I still have her. I rescued her when I was um, on part of the Appalachian Trail. I was hiking actually to raise awareness of Lyme disease on the trail. People come from all over the world to hike the Appalachian Trail, oh, and yeah. they go home very sick, and they have no idea what's going on. So I would go from shelter to shelter obviously hiking and um i had uh little little tick charts to tell people what these are what kind of diseases what kind of symptoms and um i put them my my trail name was tc tick chick and my brother at that point um brought me to virginia and uh we went he didn't want to hike that day because it was raining and that's not an option when you're hiking you rain you walk in the rain <laughs> So we went to, of all places, the mall to see a movie. And I remember it's Night's Tale because uh, I just remember everything from this. And we came out from the movie theater and there was a pet store. And it was like, oh, pet store. And my brother went, oh, God. And um, we walked in and there were these tanks on the floor. No heat, no light, nothing, no heating units. And there were a whole bunch of uh, sub-adult um, ball pythons and uh, one in particular looked very bad and I asked them you know how much and they were like oh you know whatever well that's when I got Mo and Mo um, got back to the shelter and realized that she had these very odd ticks on her and they were round and they when I got home realized that they were only indigenous to Africa and so this is when I began to look into the plight of these animals and how they're brought into the country, thousands and thousands, and probably maybe 10% make it, maybe. Mo hiked with me the rest of the trail back to Connecticut. Um, and when I got home, she wasn't even eating. And they're used to a kind of gerbil mm -hmm. over there. 
and um, all of the traumatic moving and thrown into crates sitting in Miami. They're sold to substandard pet stores. Um, it, it's a horrible industry, whether it's whether you're buying from Petco and they're breeding them, horrific conditions. Um, and that's what we are trying to do with pandemonium is teach people how to properly um, take care of these animals, but also purchase them. If you feel like you really need a tortoise, we would help you and steer you toward a better uh, a better decision than say a sulcata, which is going to get up towards two hundred pounds. You know, is that and what Humphrey is? Humphrey is an African birth-eyed tortoise. Yeah, sulcata. Um, so Mo is my my wonder child. I absolutely adore her. She's one of many snakes that I own that I've rescued, and I've had her. Uh, 20 years wow yeah and so moving out here um, when we had the Ashley's rainforest over in Centerbrook a man drove up one day and said here take this goddamn bird I don't want it anymore and he swore a few more times and he said the bird swears and bites it's like yeah but of all the animals that I've dealt with in my life and handled I had not had any background with parrots and so here is this huge blue and gold macaw who's swearing her butt off i mean she's swearing like a sailor really and i've got a group of boy scouts coming in for a walkthrough from the rainforest and i don't know what the hell to do with this bird so i call my friend who worked at a bird store down in saybrook she was the manager and i said you know it's blue and it's yellow and it has a huge beak and it's swearing and she just laughed and said that's a blue and gold macaw you have fun with that and um that was how i cut my teeth on parrots with olive it's a very very hard thing to do especially since she had an alcohol problem she came in um and went through detox the poor thing which i really was not even aware of at that point and um that's really set us up for doing the rescue with the parrots which now i know a lot more i don't know nearly what my friend Diane does. Um, she's one of our um, aviculturists. Uh, but we have some very, very smart people um, that are part of the Pandemonium Rainforest. Herbitologists and all the bird people and great vets. So, wow. very lucky. So, with all the different like pets that you've rescued, how has your relationship with each and every one. I mean, they all have distinct personalities oh, and different species. Even the reptiles do. Even the reptiles Yeah, do. even Humphrey will seek out Kim. I call her. Um, she's one of my best friends. And she works here, but she all, I think she, she kid, kids with her family that she has a part-time job and a full-time um, full uh, rescue job. So, but she's always busy. And um, he just adores her. And he will like seek her out so he can get some love. And, and he can feel when you scratch his shell. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they can. In Victorian times, they used to put little amulets and little trinkets in their shells and drill into the shell. And that's very bad. Because yeah, at some point, they can feel it. Um, on the latter part of the shell, they can't. But yeah, there's feelings throughout that shell. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. So out of all these animals, like what lessons have you learned? Like how have 
they your relationship with them help you to grow as as a person well like what what have they like taught you when i was a child um i was molested and i believe that because of that um i turned to animals to find love and and unconditional love animals give you unconditional love and it's a really amazing thing that um out of such a, a horrible thing comes this this wonderful kind of relationship with all of these animals and we find that there are very bad people that do bad things to the animals but there are also good people out there that really love the animals and have come to us and talked to us about what they can do how they can volunteer and it's it's made me love the animals so much more and appreciate them as the years go by because we get some animals in here that are almost dead and and it's simply through either a negligence or a brutality from humans and yet they will turn around within a week months sometimes a year and begin to trust begin to trust us and that is an amazing capacity that we as humans learn could learn so much from animals i mean if the they power lose of, a foot of if forgiveness. they lose a leg they just go okay so i'm gonna deal with this yes and the power of forgiveness is amazing with them but it also has made me a little bitter toward the the harder side because um people that are in a in a certain situation themselves be it the the birds that we've rescued from crack houses then people bring animals into this situation you know if you do this it's not necessarily always a decision that people make but don't bring animals into this situation i mean it's it's just as bad as bringing children in they're to us they're all of our children well maybe they bring the animals into that situation because there's no love there oh absolutely you know? they're looking and they're for love bringing, too they're absolutely bringing love into it something to connect yeah. you know it's like babies having babies yeah you know? absolutely um i i had a um a woman post today that um somewhere in the united states they just rescued these poor animals and they were almost dead um from these people's house and i said that is horrific yes you know some of them were dead yes it's absolutely horrific but nine times out of ten the person who had those animals were started off with the best intentions mm -hmm. and then it became overwhelming because they weren't equipped and and people start dropping animals off and that's why i think the hardest thing that i've learned is to say no i say no every week all the time who do you say no to, to? people who want to rehome their birds just because they don't want them anymore we only take birds from dire circumstances but we do help people rehome um we do counsel them but that is why we're working so hard to build the the large uh facility the pandemonium rainforest and that's why it's called pandemonium rainforest project now so what options do people have you know a lot of people i know a couple uh or i knew a couple and they had a parrot. I don't know what kind of parrot it was, but uh, 
the parrot, I mean, they didn't have any children. They had this parrot, and the parrot was contributing to uh, the downfall of their relationship. Mm. Because the parrot wanted to be a part of everything. Oh, yeah. Well, they're children. They, you have to look at a parrot, especially when you get the larger ones, um, and you know anywhere from a cockatoo to an Amazon to most especially the macaws. They are. They have the cognitive reasoning of a three to five year old child. You know they know if you're eating breakfast in the other room, and they're screaming because they you're want eating to be breakfast with you. in the other room. They want to be at the table. Absolutely. So when and this is one of the reasons that I don't rehome right now it's very very difficult for me to find a house or a home for a bird that I would trust that I would trust to be a forever home because you're not talking a dog or a cat you're talking something that can live 65 to 100 years oh my god it could outlive the owners yeah. and and look at look at Humphrey the tortoise he's gonna be well over 125 Wow. I mean, bearing anything wrong, and that doesn't, he's, he's a very happy, healthy little boy running around. So the problem is, is that people enter into these relationships with reptiles and with uh, parrots, and they don't do enough research. And they don't, they think if they pay for the bird, the bird will love them. Well, that's probably 50% of the time going to happen. Um, they don't change their minds very often and they have to trust you and you have to know what you're doing and if you don't know what you're doing they're going to take it out on you they're going to bite you because they are scared most people think they're just nasty but they're scared birds they're just scared when they bite and so it it, it becomes this horrible um, dichotomy of of human versus parrot instead of a nice relationship and then it just does what i call the cyclone so it goes from one house and they put it on craigslist they put it on some kind of app like that and then they go again they just keep going to another house i have some birds that have been eight ten houses in a year and it wow. gets worse people i've had cages come in where there's obviously where somebody has literally punched the cage probably because they were so sick of listening to this bird scream and they were so at the end and it is so sad and that's like the macaw that came in as an alcoholic the yeah. owner probably used alcohol as a sedative absolutely, to keep the parrot quiet absolutely because they eat and drink everything we do and they trust us and that's the really sad thing and it's it's very hard for me to be okay with people on a whole when I see what these guys come from and go through and then come through and to see how they actually just bloom like a flower you know they'll be all plucked and very unhappy and emaciated and then just to see them bloom over the months weeks months years and we have one bird that it took five years before he started growing his feathers back and now he's wonderful Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're very, very intelligent. And, uh, you know, and I would not tell anybody they're a good pet. They're not. There's too many. There's, I mean, people breeding them in the United States, they're not brought in anymore because of CITES. But um, 
Uh, people breed them in order to sell, sell them. them. Yep. And they breed them to substandard pet stores like the pet place down in Brantford. They sell macaws. You can plop down $2,000 and bring home a macaw that day. They cost that much? Oh, yeah. Yep. Some of them cost like 10 plus uh, thousand each. Mm -hmm. Blue, blue hyacinths are very expensive. And that's just because of their physical appearance? That their physical appearance, uh, it's very hard to breed them. You know, they don't breed well. So, you know, it just costs more. There's not, there's a supply and demand kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But even now, um, you know, the demand is down a little bit, which is good. Them, they're not a great pet. You know, if, uh, if you have a flock, they're flock animals. They're happy. Right, they're out but, of their element. Yeah, well, and they're with their family. Right. Um, so a lot of times you'll come in the store and you don't even hear them at my place. It's because they have their flock. But if I go in there, they start making noise because they all want my attention. If I leave, you know, it's right. like crazy because they're <laughs> like, Mom, don't leave. Get back here. Um, but our eventual plans are to build this very large place that will not only help um, Connecticut, uh, as a tourist place, but it will also help people coming out of the opiate crisis, coming in to do volunteer work in there with the animals and giving them the unconditional love. Because that is so important. Okay, explain that. Walk me through that again. Okay, which part? The, the place that you... The project. The project. So it's we are working with Point One Architects and Old Lyme. They've been absolutely wonderful with us, and they have helped us develop this beautiful kind of uh, plan at this point for a hundred thousand square foot building uh, with this beautiful aviary in the center so you'll literally be walking into a rainforest with all of the parrots that live over there at that are homed at Ashley's Garden would be able to fly together they are a flock and they're a cohesive flock uh, the problem with some of them is they cannot fly they've been hurt Right. And um, so we are building what's called a tree of life in the center. And that is for those guys that can't fly. If you've ever seen Rio one or two, they can walk and they climb right up the tree and they get into the canopy where now, they want Bic, to be. Now, is Bic, can Bic fly? No. Okay. No. I mean, she can glide, but she's not a real flyer. So the same thing. And even though they are all from different parts of the world, Australia, Africa, you know, uh, Belize, they all will be able to live in this environment beautifully. It will be large enough for them to get to their own places. And uh, I've done a lot of research along zoos um, along the eastern seaboard and uh, been lucky enough to be brought back behind the scenes and be able to tour their facilities and ask them the keepers, what would you do if you were building something new? How would you build it? How would you make this better? And so it's with a, a great deal of other people's wisdom that um, I brought uh, initial plans over to point one and they were able to work with me and, and really come up with some functioning working plans. Um, but we're hoping that people coming out of, say you go into the hospital for a month rehab um, for the opiate crisis. We want people to be able to come to our place for a couple of hours, half a day, 
and use it as their volunteer area with the animals, choosing either the reptiles or the parrots and coming in and getting that relationship, that one-on-one, -on -one, that animal's always going to be there for you, that, that you are coming in to do something that's really past yourself. It's for the animals. It's to help them get better and in turn will make you better. And the same thing with people for with uh, PTSD. There's been some terrific studies about um, people with PTSD and the parrots, which, you know, I would always go to the reptiles. They're quiet and, and huggy, but uh, some of our parrots are very, very sweet and loving. And they pick their people. Parrots pick their people within seconds. Yeah. So if, yeah, Gracie picked you. Yeah, Pepper. Um, yep. After you yes. Pepper picked me. Um, it's amazing how they do it immediately when you walk in. They're just, birds are just like, yep, I love that person. Or no, I don't like that person. And uh, that, that gives you a really special feeling with when an animal has nothing to benefit and right. no reason to pick you or someone else literally almost points at you and says, you're it. I love you. I trust you. You have a good aura. Yes, I trust you. Yeah, trust is trust. huge in any of those situations. Yeah, it is. And we're hoping to work with um, Islam Correctionals and, wow. and have some people come in too, so. That's great. Yeah, so it's uh, we need grant writers, we need we need help with the, with the project, we need help. But that's one of the reasons that we opened a thrift store here because um, we needed to start raising some ground money. Mm. Um, uh, thus far, people have been working uh, pro bono and I, cannot expect people to keep doing that and we need engineers and things like that so in order to go forward we need donors we need volunteers right grant writers things like that that's awesome yeah yeah it's a lot of love no one works with us and no one volunteers with us unless they truly love animals yeah, you don't have to really love people. You've got to love animals. <laughs> I do, though. I mean, you know, rescuing these animals over the years, we've rescued so many people, so many young people that just, you know, kind of fit in and find their niche. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's really wonderful to watch. Little do they know they're being rescued, but um, yes, little they do are. they know, but they Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really kind of wonderful to watch. That's beautiful. A symbiotic relationship. That's so, beautiful. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So if someone wants to donate to you, like how do they contact you? Um, they can call Ashley's Garden um, uh, in Deep River, or they can come by, meet the animals, and, and get a better working knowledge of what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. um, what if they're not in this area? Oh, they can just go on our website. Um, it's Ashley's Garden, or you can go on the Pandemonium Rainforest Project, and that Ooh, so is so the project has its oh, own. Oh yeah, the project website. has a beautiful website that you can donate through, um, but that you can also meet some of the animals. Uh, Karen has done all of our tech work for us, and she's made a beautiful website so that you can meet all these guys and see what we're about and a little bit of their history. So it's kind of nice. Excellent. So I'm yeah. going to link up from my website. Yeah. To pandemonium. Great. Thank you. Make it easier for yeah. people. Well, we need people that really love animals, you know, and understand what we're doing. 
that we're not doing it for anything other than making their lives better and bringing some awareness to the exotic animals and what happens to them. Oh, it, I mean, thousands, thousands of them die, I'd say monthly in Connecticut because people get them and don't know what they're doing. And I understand that there is that, that guise of ignorance, but there's Google or you can call us and we will answer any questions with reptiles and parrots. And if I don't know, and Lord knows, I don't know nearly everything that I need to. But I, you can connect them I have to those. people to connect them to or to take a question and get back to them. Always. Always. And we have wonderful vets that we will uh, will tell people where to go because there's a lot of vets that will tell you that they do exotics and they are not exotic vets and that's very scary. Why would they do that? Um, because they think that they are. They want to put themselves out there and um we've seen animal a lot of animals die because of that go to the proper vet i have six vets i have one doctor for myself and i have six different kinds of vets for you know, different kinds look of at our, look at look at look at our our medical institution and they're all practicing and i always say practicing um, as my dad would say, they'll get it right someday. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you have lung specialists, you have, right. you know, joint specialists. Well, that's what these people are. You know, if you go to a, a regular vet, we hope that they can do a good job with a dog or a cat. But you have to go to an exotics for anything else. An exotic vet. And this is a person who has really put in twice a year to learn about these animals. It's not just, oh, well, you know, I work on dogs, so I can work on a reptile. No, they're cold-blooded. Totally different system. Right. They have hearts and lungs and gallbladders and everything like, excuse me, we do. But they're set up differently. And so, yeah, you got to go to the right vet for the right thing. Or your animal's not going to get any better and it's going to be just a, huh, a guest situation. And hell, I can do that. I don't do that. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's kind of involved. Now, Lyme disease, I didn't know that about mm. you. You had um, long standing. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I get it almost every other year. Apparently, people that get Lyme disease are kind of the tick magnet. <laughs> and for some reason, we release more oxygen or something. And. I try to uh, stay away from reading all of the newest stuff because um, I am in a world of uh, if I don't know about it, then I don't have to know about it. I'm sorry. So, uh, um, so I, uh, I it's in a, a very naive world that I live, but unfortunately, just uh, recovered from babesiosis this year. But the new lime doesn't doesn't blend with my old lime. Hopefully, luckily. So we can usually we can usually uh, you know they can tell those things now. They can tell you about how long you've had your old lime and is it flaring up or is this new lime? Yeah, it's quite involved and it's very very important to have a good diet. Very important. Oh my God. If you have it and you have long term, it feeds on sugar and it feeds on 
when you eat um, meat. Mm. Really? Mm-hmm. It's very important to have a good diet. That is not to say that I do not eat sugar and meat, but I'll tell you what, when I get sick, this thing whoops me because I get double sick because the the spirochetes just playing and going, woohoo, she's sick. So it gets stronger. It takes me longer to get to, to get, get over some something. And it's also genetics. I mean, if I I mean, they don't really know why I'm not paralyzed. But I can only say that it must be my my good genes. My mother is uh, amazing. She's 91 and she's getting a job at Target. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Right. So uh, that's the only thing that they can really, because there's no reason that I should be as strong as I am. That's so, amazing yeah. because you are a busy woman. I am. I beast things out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Very busy. But, and all really, really good. Very, all positive, really good energy at the store and over here at the, at the thrift shop. And it's just fun. It's, you got to do what you love. Right? Got to do what you, you gotta love. Do what you love. All or, right. You know, you, what do you, you're wasting That's your why life. we're here. Yeah. That's why we're here. Yeah. And on that great. note, I'm going to say thank you, Allison. Thank you. Ron. And thank you for listening to Inside the Passion of Rhythm and Voice. Thank you. Thank